Darkcast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Hola, my beautiful humans. This is Jasmine Castillo. And this is MW. Bringing awareness of murdered and missing indigenous women, girls, two spirits, the LGBTQ community, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, Black Indigenous people of color. These are their stories. So, welcome to Hands Off, my podcast. We are coming to the end of Hispanic Heritage Month, yet we're able to leave the best for last. I had the privilege of speaking with two women who have worked on hundreds of cases at Parabon Nano Labs Inc. Parabon is forging some of the most effective outcomes of DNA age, from DNA nanotech, forensics, analytics, and genetic genealogy. Since 2018, Parabon has helped solve 230 violent crimes in North America. The analysis has also been used to find possible suspects in murder cases and to identify remains. One high-profile case Parabon has recently taken on is the Jean Benet Ramsey case this month, October 2022. Here is our conversation on how you could be the key to the unidentified Jane and John Doe's. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you both currently work at the Parabon Nanolabs, Inc. Can you tell the listeners your name and what do you do for Parabon Nanolabs, Inc.? Sure. So I'm Cece Moore, and I am the chief genetic genealogist at Parabon. And they do multiple things. They're a genetic technology company. But the division that both Carol and I work with is the genetic genealogy services for law enforcement. So we're using genealogy research to help identify violent criminals and also unidentified human remains, which we prefer to call Jane and John Doe's. Carol has worked with me for many years in various capacities, and she was the very first person that I wanted to bring on when we created this this division of Parabon in order to offer this service to law enforcement. I work with CC at Parabon. As she mentioned, um, we've been working together at Parabon since uh, 2018. And I also happen to, I'm a genetic genealogist, of course, for Parabon, but I also work on all of the Hispanic cases that come in. Uh, because I have some background in speaking um, the Spanish language and I've lived overseas and I understand the culture. Um, I'm more comfortable, you know, kind of navigating in that community. And so it's been kind of a good fit, um, but they are, you know, definitely among the most challenging cases. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Cece and Carol, for that. The one of the other questions that I wanted to ask, because I know that I've I've done a little digging, completely novice in regards to what Parabon Nanolabs does. Um, what I discovered is that the earliest use of the term genetic genealogy was found to date 
was about uh, February 20th of 1989 in an article by Tom Siegfried um, from the Dallas Morning News entitled The Genetic Genealogy and the Search for Eve. Yet we have been researching lineage and history for our people for centuries prior to this. And like we really never start off in being what we are today. Both UCC and Carol are currently genetic genealogists. And um, where did you begin your journey and what inspired you to venture into this career path? It's such a great question because there was no such thing as a professional genetic genealogist until about 10 years ago. So we all started as hobbyists, as citizen scientists. Most of us, I think almost all of us that are involved in genetic genealogy, started with traditional genealogy, where we were just interested in building our own family trees further and further back in time, identifying those long-distant ancestors. And then we have moved into these other applications of genetic genealogy. Uh, I'll let Carol talk a little bit about her origin story, though. As Cece mentioned, uh, yeah, I started as a hobbyist as well, and um, I was a genealogist first, and then right around 2011, I think it was, um, uh, some of the large commercial DNA testing companies began offering these, you know, direct-to-consumer tests, um, started with 23andMe, and I saw that as just kind of the perfect you know, match with genealogy because it becomes this ultimate proof. You've got the DNA testing to help back up and become a piece of evidence that you can use in your own genealogy research. It's a, you know, a really, really great combination. Just got sucked in and started testing everyone in my family and, you know, examining all of these relationships and uh, trying to figure out how we were related to all these other people, you know, that come up on the match list. And of course that just, you know, led into things, uh, you know, such as adoptee searching, which came a little bit later on as some of these databases became more robust. My niece was getting married and I thought that it would be a fun unique gift to give her a family tree. Haha, <laughs> famous last words, because of course, once you get into it, you never really get out of it. So I never finished that tree and gave it to her, but that's what led me into it. And then I saw that a little company called Family Tree DNA started offering DNA testing for genealogical purposes way back in 2000, but they were offering very limited type of testing, Y-DNA and mitochondrial DNA testing which was super exciting. But what really changed the field, which is what Carol just alluded to, when in 2010, 23andMe started offering a genetic genealogy type test based on our autosomal DNA. So autosomal DNA is the type of DNA we inherit from all of our ancestral lines. And so that showed incredible promise. And that is where I realized that this incredible advancement really had virtually unlimited potential for exploration. And so I jumped in with both feet. I was one of the very early adopters. I tested about 40 of my family members and started writing up what I was finding on a blog. I started back in uh, June, 2010 called Your Genetic Genealogist. And then I created a DNA interest group as part an offshoot of a local genealogy society. And Carol showed up. So that's how we met way, way back uh, 10 years ago, a decade ago. 
And then I sort of switched my focus from identifying long dead ancestors to trying to help people with very recent identity questions or mysteries in their family, such as adoptees, donor conceived individuals, and an amnesiac. And that really was life-changing for people. So that's really where I put my focus. And Carol just, I think, decided, she can speak for herself, but I think she <laughs> decided that that was probably the most compelling thing you could do with this advancement was to help people answer those long-held identity questions. Absolutely, Cece. I think it was um, the it was sometime in the middle of 2011, and I attended the local DNA interest group meeting, and Cece was leading it. I had just started testing some members of my family uh, through 23andMe, the autosomal testing that Cece mentioned, and found out about this local group and sat down and realized, oh my gosh, this is this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like this, it was definitely a revelation. And Cece and I, I think, went out um, and had drinks afterwards and started talking. And, you know, it was just one of those moments that you will always remember because it really shifted the focus of my life trajectory. It definitely, um, you know, became kind of a, a really big focus of mine. And I haven't looked back since, you know, 2011. This has really been the path forward. Right. So then when I, again, decided to change my focus to identifying Jane and John Doe's, and I did that partly because the databases had grown so significantly that working adoption type cases was much easier because there were many, many millions of people in these databases. And I had started a group called DNA Detectives on Facebook where people were learning to resolve these mysteries on their own. My level of expertise was not as necessary anymore. I mean, of course, there were always some very difficult cases that needed it, but that's when I decided that identifying Jane and John Doe's was really the next step I wanted to take and the next direction I wanted to go. And I saw that very much as akin to the adoption work I had been doing. So it's very similar in that you're providing answers to families, you're reuniting families, but in a much much sadder way, right? In death rather than in life. And it was very clear that these techniques that I had developed for unknown parentage or adoption type cases was completely applicable to identifying someone who was deceased as well. And so when I decided to join forces with Parabon to offer this service to law enforcement, of course, the first person I wanted to come along for the ride with me was Carol. And she was <laughs> more than enthusiastic to do so. And what I didn't know was that she had this incredible expertise for these Latin American or Hispanic cases. And so that's been a huge benefit because those are very difficult to work. We're limited to these two very small databases, the two smallest databases in uh, genetic genealogy. But there's a big misconception that we're using Ancestry DNA or 23andMe. We're not allowed to. Their terms of service bar that use. So we are restricted to a website called GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA, which is that original company that first blazed this trail. They decided to help law enforcement, but they are a smaller database than the others. And so it takes a lot of skill to be able to take that very limited match data and put these family trees together. And even more so 
when it is population group that is less well represented in our databases, which is true for both Hispanic cases and for African-American cases, and then for anyone whose family comes from a recent immigrant background. Yeah, thank you so much for, wow. So you guys have been uh, a pact for over a decade. That's <laughs> yeah. It's good to have a great team by your side, especially when you're dealing with something such a sensitive situation with dealing with the John and Jane Doe's um, as a whole and working through Parabon. And I actually was pronouncing it wrong. I think I call it Gedmatch. <laughs> Because I, you know what, a lot of people do. There's actually <laughs> two accepted pronunciations, so you're not totally wrong. Okay, I prefer Jedmatch. I've been friends with the owners, that the men that developed the database back in 2010 for a okay. lot of years. Um, so I call it Jedmatch. One of them calls it Jedmatch, and the other one calls it Gedmatch. So. Okay. You're okay, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. Um, ironically, I just released uh, three episodes so far in regards to the first two episodes were part one and part two that narrowed on Jane and John Doe's in the U.S. And then I just released part one of Canadian Jane Doe's. And they're all based on Hispanic Heritage Month. So I was trying to get as much information. And I'm glad that this is... This was the opportunity of a lifetime to speak with two wonderful minded, strong women who have a goal and a passion in regards to searching for the, the lost loved ones, the own, the unknown Jane and John Doe's and me being Afro Latina. This is, this is more of a personal quest other than being an actual podcaster this month. Um, my heritage is extremely important for me. I have been searching for who I am. Uh, I've been on my journey for many years. And as more and more that I go into it, it's like, I learn more about who I am and who I wasn't. I was brought up to assume that I was um, based on other people's statistics. I, there's times that I've always wished like, maybe I should, I was switched at birth because I just like, for some reason, nothing's fitting me in regards to my family. Um, so well, I guess we've actually worked some switch at birth cases that you I, jump to, but when you've ruled out everything else, you know, it, it does happen. And so we've been pretty shocked to find through direct to consumer DNA testing that there's quite a number of those cases. Mm -hmm. And we were both involved in a case that is sort of a switched case, though a little different. Uh, the Paul Franzak case where his, a newborn was kidnapped from the hospital out of his mother's arms in Chicago in 1964. And then about 16 months later, <clears throat> a toddler was abandoned in New Jersey and the FBI and others decided that he was the kidnapped child and he was raised by the Franzaks. And we were able to help <laughs> Paul Franzak unravel all this, that he was not the original Paul Franzak. We were able to, Carol and I and a team, uh, we're able to give him his biological original identity and then also eventually locate the the real Paul Franzak, the one that was kidnapped. And so there's crazy things out there. I mean, direct-to-consumer DNA testing has definitely shown us that real life can be a lot crazier than fiction. I mean, you wouldn't even imagine some of these stories. And so, yeah, I mean, like I said, it's kind of a last case scenario that you think, okay, maybe someone was switched at birth, but it it, it does happen. I doubt you were, but you know, it <laughs> it is something that we find. 
<laughs> Jasmine, have you tested your DNA with any I, of the commercial I, companies? No, I have not. See, oh. and and I hear I'm supposed to be, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk, and I haven't even done it. I think it, it, some of the things that concerns me is my financial status. Um, I'm not able to afford. They have these wonderful opportunities where they they discount around holidays, Mother even Day, right your birthday. Now. Yeah, ancestors. Yeah. It's $59 right now, which is about as low as it gets. Mm-hmm. But um, that's think, too bad. I used yeah. to have I used to have a Kits for Kindness donation program where people that we helped would pay it forward and buy kits for other people. Oh, wow. Maybe you need to learn about your own background. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. And I think once you do the testing yourself and you see, you know, the, the components that they offer you, because, you know, they're going to give you um, an estimate of what your ethnicity is, um, you know, these ancestral origins. Um, and they're also going to give you a list of people who match with you, who share DNA with you from their database. And once you see that and understand, you know, that there's lots and lots and hundreds and thousands of people out there that you share DNA with, it's a little easier to kind of wrap your head around what it is that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're using match lists um, mm-hmm. from crime scene DNA and trying to piece together those family trees to figure out who this individual could be that left the DNA at the crime scene or who is, excuse me, unidentified human remain, a Jane or John Doe, mm-hmm. um, trying to figure out, you know, who they were, who were their parents, who were their grandparents, that sort of thing. Right, right. And I have a little tidbit and I, uh, in regards to my story, um, I've even before I even started this whole podcast, which started in May of this year, one of the things one of the first episodes is about the story about me. Um, And the thing is, is that it all started with uh, a case against my father who sexually abused me when I was a child. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've always asked my family when I got on here is I wanted to know about my family tree and everybody's so tight lipped about it. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing with the um, the black American community, it's like what happens in a home stays in a home. There's very tight lip and a lot of the things that go on in the home. I even asked if there was any unknown cases of possible missing people in our family and no one wanted to talk about it. This is an opportunity for not only for me to know who I am, instead of me just second guessing, you know, because someone whoever said something, you know, it might stick or not, but there might be someone out there in in my family tree that no one wants to talk about. And it's an unsolved cold case. I mean, I have this gut feeling that I could be helping not just my, my tree, but a wide range of Latinas who are out there. We're all connected in some way. Um, so I'm on a journey, you know, I'm on this, this, this quest as well. And I, it just, it's a bittersweet situation, but I think I'm at that crossroad where I want to be beneficial. So, well, I think you touched on something too, Jasmine, that I, uh, see a lot when I'm working on cases with, um, the Hispanic population groups, and that is this, um, kind of fear to get involved and, you know, that a lot of the families don't want to talk about, you know, bad things that happened. But I do feel that there is kind of a little bit of awakening that is happening through DNA testing because, you know, DNA is opening up some of these secrets and, um, you know, revealing some things that I think are better to be known. 
um, than to be kept secret. And, you know, sometimes it's misattributed paternity. Sometimes it's, you know, somebody that went missing um, that no one wanted to talk about. And when you do do your DNA testing, you upload to these public databases that are available for law enforcement use. Um, you, you don't really even realize how many cousins that you have, distant cousins, and you could be the key to solving any one of dozens of cases out there. Um, you could have hundreds of third cousins and, you know, one of them might happen to be a Jane or a John Doe that, you know, a law enforcement agency is looking into. And so, you know, it's interesting that you brought that up because I definitely hear that a lot. You know, some people are surprised that they matched with a Jane or John Doe. And the tendency is that they think that it's somebody very closely related to them, but it's not usually anyone very, very closely related. It's usually someone who's quite a bit more distant, you know, at least second to third cousins or so. But that's what we need to solve these cases. You know, are more people who are willing to upload their DNA to these databases and more willing to be a little bit open about sharing their family tree and what information they do know. And that allows us to kind of put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah, and I think that is one of the reasons we were really excited to talk to you today, because we really do need to get more participation from the Hispanic community and the African-American community, because the problem is that if we don't get that participation, if people aren't willing to contribute their DNA to our efforts, upload to GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA, we can't return your own community members and family members to you. We cannot help to identify those individuals. And so I do understand the hesitancy and the concerns about law enforcement, but it backfires because if there are missing people in your families or communities that we're unable to identify because we don't have enough Hispanics or uh, African-Americans that are willing to contribute their DNA, that really is a disadvantage to these communities that are already so greatly disadvantaged. And Carol and I feel really strong. I think I can speak for Carol also. You know, our team feels really strongly about helping to identify these individuals from, you know, communities of color and these and some of the disadvantaged communities. And we're willing to even, you know, put pro bono time into those cases and work very, very hard to bring answers to those families and to help these people have dignity and death and have their names, their identities. But we need your help. We can't do it without the support of these communities. And as I said, I totally understand why there's a hesitancy, but I also want people to understand the other side of that, that Mm -hmm. by refusing to help, it does put your own communities at a disadvantage and it lets these individuals languish without their identities and without the dignity of, of having that identification. Yes. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. You are spot on in regards to that. I am dedicating honoring to the Hispanic Heritage Month um, and, you know, the honor of keeping the Jane and John Doe's to the forefront in my, on my podcast. And, and then on top of that, it's like, you have this, the same passion and drive that I just, I just want to bring to light. You don't get to see, speak with the family directly at times. Right. It's usually the law enforcement that has the front line in regards to so you kind of in the back line, but I want to personally say me from my heart. 
I thank you for taking this task on. That's something is just the hardest thing that I could have even imagined of anyone doing, and you're doing it with passion and with your heart. So I want to thank you, even though I don't know you. I, well, I thank I mean, you. I think I get more than enough credit and recognition, but Carol really stays behind the scenes and she deserves much, much more credit mm-hmm. and appreciation, but she, she wants to do this work mostly anonymously. So, you know, that speaks to, to her character and willingness to do this. But I, I think we really appreciate what you're saying. And I think also we get really invested in these cases and these families. And it can be difficult sometimes when we just hand the information over to law enforcement and they take it from there. And we don't always even know exactly what happened or get updates. Uh, and so you're right. You know, we don't always get to most of the time we don't get to t- talk to the family and really find out the details about this individual we've worked so hard to identify. Mm-hmm. Jasmine, um, yes, I am definitely at peace with the idea of, you know, not being thanked publicly. I mean, I think it's enough personal satisfaction to just, you know, be able to get the case across the finish line. But I really do enjoy ultimately being able to go back to some of the matches who have helped us get to that point. And once that case is made public, I can go back to those matches who have been helping behind the scenes and let them know, you know, we did it. Um, You know, we figured out who this person is and they certainly are the ones that, you know, deserve a lot of the credit as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as I mentioned, it is sometimes hard, um, you know, to get that cooperation with some of the matches, but there's always somebody in these families that are, that are very willing to help. And, you know, also one misconception that I wanted to just bring up that I end up facing a lot, and I want to make sure that your listeners understand is that, you know, if you are a match to a Jane or a John Doe or to, a you know, potential perpetrator, um, you know, a case that's being worked that's a violent crime, you can do so anonymously. You know, you can help anonymously. Nobody needs to know within your family that you're helping. Um, We don't use your name. You know, we don't share your name with the agency. We anonymize everything that we can, you know, that goes to the agency. And so I find a lot of times that the matches are much more willing to help once they know that they don't need to, you know, make themselves known um, and that they can do so kind of behind the scenes. So I find definitely within uh, some of the population groups that I work with that that makes them feel a lot more comfortable that, you know, some of the kind of strong personalities in their family that might feel otherwise don't ever need to know that they've tested their DNA and that they're helping out behind the scenes. You know, of course, knowing that that family finally has some answers, yes. you know, to what happened to their loved one. Absolutely. That, you know? that people don't realize is a lot of the cases we work never get announced publicly. And I think we're just as happy with that. You know, we don't require the the public recognition. And as I said, I get a lot of it, but I don't actually need it either. It's not something that I'm striving for. I'm happy to be behind the scenes doing this work. But because of my media background, it's really valuable when I can take advantage of that and get the word out there and get more people to upload. 
to educate the public about what we do and try to garner more support for it, both through just public opinion and then also, you know, action, uploading to these databases and opting in to law enforcement matching. And that we have to dive into a case for many, many long hours at a time because our work relies on spotting patterns overlaps, commonalities. We need to find that surname in a tree that we saw 10 hours ago in another tree. We need to put all of that together. And so you really have to be extremely focused and you're alone. You're sitting in front of your computer for long, long, long hours digging into these family trees and trying to find these connections between all of the matches. Because what we're doing is we're really reverse engineering someone's identity based on the family trees of those they're sharing DNA with. So when that data file gets uploaded into the database from that unknown Jane or John Doe, the people who are on that match list are the people that share ancestors with them. And our job is to figure out which ancestors are shared and we can piece together their family tree little by little by little through that process. But you can imagine the type of concentration and long hours that that takes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And for for all the people like myself who are completely novice and, you know, these words and these acronyms that we utilize and especially you, you use it every day, um, you could probably talk about this in your sleep. But for <laughs> for the for us listeners, there is a handful of acronyms and a lot of people aren't aware of. So what does a person need to know about and how genetic genealogy, if it's beneficial, and what are these, the names that we just pretty much you've called out here, um, and I'm probably going to completely butcher it because of my accent, uh, autosomal DNA, yep. I've read in that you do some type of snapshot DNA phenotyping, snapshot DNA you know, kinship, mm-hmm. um, what's the acronym for SNPs, et cetera. Um, what do I need to know going in to understand and how this is done and what these all acronyms mean? Well, the good news is you don't really need to understand the underlying science to take advantage of direct-to-consumer DNA testing and genetic genealogy. Of course, as you go along, you'll learn more and more, but the basics are pretty straightforward. When you spit in the tube, mail it in to that DNA testing company, they're going to process that, and they're going to analyze your SNPs, which are genetic markers, single nucleotide polymorphisms, but you don't need to memorize that. They're just looking at your genetic markers across your genome, and they're going to then compare those against everyone else in their database. And we're not looking for single marker matches. So it's not just one SNP and one SNP. We're looking for blocks of DNA, long segments of DNA, where two people have the exact same genetic code. So those A, T, Cs, and Gs that make up our DNA, we want to find people who share thousands of A, T, C, and Gs in a row. And if you do, the only reason you would have that shared block or segment of DNA is if you inherited that from a common ancestor. And so you look at their family trees, you look at your family trees for the source of that shared DNA. And so you have to be able to build your family tree, right? You've got to be able to do the underlying genealogy and then compare against other people who have built their trees. And you can start finding common ancestors and you say, oh, look, I share 1% of my DNA with someone or 
uh, it's called centimorgans is how we measure how much DNA is shared. So maybe you share 70 centimorgans with someone. That means you have probably two, three, four blocks of DNA in common. You add all those blocks together, you get the amount of DNA shared and you can predict your likely relationship. So if you share 70 centimorgans, maybe your third cousins, which means you share one set of your great, great grandparents. So it's really fun when you start being able to identify where that shared DNA comes from. And so if you just go ahead and get that test and mail it in, they'll do all that scientific work for you. And then they'll just give you a list of people that share significant amounts of DNA with you. And significant amounts can be under 1%. But you'll look at that top list, the top matches on your list. Those are your closest relatives in the database. Maybe they're going to be a first cousin. Maybe you'll have a unknown half sibling in the database you don't know about. Uh, maybe you'll only have second cousins, which means you share great grandparents, but you'll have hundreds or thousands of people on that list. And at the top, they're going to be the closest related and the ones at the end are the most distantly related. A lot of those people will have family trees that you can look at and see if you recognize anything. So people shouldn't hesitate just because they don't understand the science or because they feel intimidated because the companies really do a lot of the work for you these days. It's not like when Carol and I started out, we had to figure it all out for ourselves. Um, now there's a lot of great tools and features that make it easier for people to use this amazing technology. I think this question was probably more directed towards me in regards to being this, the science behind it, because I'm being a science nut and all, but uh, I just love to know more. Um, but thank you very much for that. Uh, you helped me understand it as well as give more confidence to people who are interested or kind of having that last question that they just had on their mind that uh, has been answered by you. Thank you so much. Well, for this. some of it. Yeah, I mean, some of it, because I... <laughs> I mean, snapshot phenotyping. Uh, yeah, is, I was going to say that's an important one to talk yes, about. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. that's, that's not genetic genealogy. That's another, another service offered by Parabon to law enforcement. It's a separate service, but it's based on the same technology. They are analyzing the SNPs, the genetic markers across the genome of somebody who is unidentified. And from that, they're predicting their physical traits. So their eye color, their hair color, their skin color, skin tone, shape, face. And then they're creating a snapshot phenotype image that predicts what someone might look like. Now, it's not meant to be a photograph. It's not meant to be identical. You can't account for things like a scar on someone's face or if they, they wear glasses or if their BMI is higher. And so it's really just meant uh, primarily to exclude people right? You can exclude a lot of people whose traits aren't consistent with that. And they always use confidence levels. So maybe we're 95% confident that somebody has blue eyes versus brown eyes, or we might be able to predict that someone has red hair, or maybe um, they are, uh, they have brown skin, but it's a light tone, or maybe they have dark brown skin. Maybe they have freckles. Those are the types of things Parabon can predict. And where it really is powerful is when we can combine that with ge the genetic genealogy. So we can narrow it down even further. So with genetic genealogy, maybe we narrow it down to one family, and then we can use that snapshot phenotype to eliminate some of the people in that family because their traits don't mix. Where it comes in really useful for Jane and John Doe cases 
is when the agency can put that image out there in the media, it often gets a lot of attention. And sometimes that alone can solve a case and identify a Jane or John Doe because someone sees that and goes, wait a minute, my cousin is missing or my best friend from high school is missing. And you know, that looks close enough. That is consistent with their appearance. And maybe that person hasn't been reported missing for some reason. And then they will reach out to the agency. And we have seen cases solved with that alone. Wow. Now, um, on the top of my head, what is the most, the oldest case or something that you'd like to bring awareness that you are still, or if you've just received a case that hasn't been solved? I mean, I can answer your question and there is one I want to mention, but then I'll let Carol talk about one of hers maybe that has been resolved and announced. And this doesn't fit so much with the Hispanic Heritage Month, but it is an African-American little girl that was murdered in St. Louis. She's called St. Louis Jane Doe. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't able to speak about her the first couple of years I worked on it. But recently the agency has gone public and allowed a documentarian to publicize that we have been trying to identify her for a couple of years using genetic genealogy, but I have not been able to get much cooperation from the family members. And so it's made it extremely difficult for us to ID her. She's a little girl who was raped and murdered and she's identified. And so it's a really good example of you know, how we need support from these communities so we can identify these their family members, their community members. And you can Google her, St. Louis Jane Doe. If you know anyone has any leads, please, please let the St. Louis detectives know. And if anybody uh, is willing to help us out by contributing their DNA to GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA, I'd love to get that case solved. It's one of my oldest cases. It's been hanging over my head. I think about this little girl all the time. I would do almost anything to identify her. So if I could get more community support in doing that, um, that would be greatly appreciated. Yes. And I'll go ahead and share the information in regards to how they can contact law enforcement or, or get involved in being a participant of admitting some of their DNA for this particular child. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's a really incredibly tragic oh. case and we just really need to get her name so we can let her family know and they can figure out what happened to her. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say in general, I have a number of Hispanic cases that fall under our contract with the state of Oregon. We work with the state medical examiner's office for the Oregon State Police. And I work on, uh, you know, a number of the Hispanic cases there. And they're extremely difficult. Um, and I, I do have a number of them that are not yet solved. And so, you know, I would just plead, uh, you know, that if there are any listeners who might potentially have um, relatives close or far that live in the state of Oregon, and you're either of Puerto Rican background, Mexican American background, um, you know, even Central American, I would just please ask that if you've already done some consumer DNA testing to consider uploading to GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA and opting in to law enforcement matching, because you just never know when you're going to be able to help us on one of those cases that, that I'm working on. You know, there's another case that Alaska police have gone 
Republic about a man that was found at the top of a mountain to help them determine is from Central America. And they've been begging people to enter their DNA into GEDmatch. And they asked me to publicize that case. And so, you know, that's Carol to Carol's point. It's not just Mexicans that we need or Puerto Ricans. We desperately need people from with Central American background and South American to also contribute their DNA to this effort because there's a lot of people, immigrants or people from immigrant families that are unidentified currently that we would just love to be able to help get this information to their families and also help in the cases that are homicides to be able to get the information to the detectives so they can look into what happened to these people. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Carol and Cece. This is amazing. And I'm glad that I was able to get some information and it doesn't even have to be in detail. I just want to make sure that the listeners know that there is some spots that they're you're in dire need of having more information or helping someone help out and and I know there's a lot of cases in in different states that have a higher percentage of unsolved Jane and John Doe's and I literally just got done doing uh, Canada's Jane and John Doe's it's mm-hmm. amazing it's amazing there is so many names I just don't I would probably have a podcast for about 50 years straight to right. even get every single last person who has been ident- unidentified and um, who are the ones who haven't been even claimed as missing. Some There's mm. some people who don't even know that they're missing at all. Yeah, we've had so many cases that we end up, you know, being able to help that agency resolve. And most of the time, the vast majority of the time, that individual has never been reported missing for a variety of reasons. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is, it's shocking when you start to understand the numbers and the official numbers are, you know, around 40,000 or so in the U.S. alone. But when you consider the vast majority of the cases we have worked on, you know, and been able to resolve were people that were never even in those official databases, you know that the number has to be a lot, lot higher than that. Yes, yeah. we so we really encourage people that might think, oh, I'm not the right one to be reporting someone, you know, just do it. You mm-hmm. might not be an immediate family member. You might be an extended family member or a friend, but we need you to get these people reported missing. And sometimes there's a lot of hoops to jump through and it can be difficult, but that is really the best way to get these cases solved. Now, Indeed. obviously, you know, that's not happening in a lot of these cases. And so the agencies are having to spend thousands of dollars to get these individuals identified. And it often takes decades to do so. But if more people really make the effort to report their loved ones missing, then we won't have to go through all of this, right? It won't take as long and the agencies won't have to expend these types of resources because funding is an issue as well. There just isn't a lot of funding for these old cases and the agencies are scrambling trying to find ways to to be able to afford to get these people identified and fortunately some people have stepped up there has been you know a lot of um individuals that are willing to help fund cases but it really it shouldn't happen this way right these people mm-hmm. should be in the system of missing and then they could match them up much more efficiently with these unidentified remains cases and we're just not seeing that yeah, absolutely. You've hit a lot, a lot. And I, I'm so 
grateful. Thank you so much. I think one of the things in closing is that you've mentioned that there was these, I guess the abbreviation is DTC, genetic testing companies. Mm -hmm. They have the private database that has completely exploded exponentially in the past 10 years, 10, 20 years. Um, with ancestor DNA, they they have themselves in nearly 15 million individuals. Um, 23andMe's contain nearly 10 million. My Heritage and Family Tree DNA, which is FTDNA, um, they're gathering or containing roughly 3.5, um, I guess, based on a research or survey in 2019. And of course, that's <laughs> that was uh yeah it's actually been updated so yeah that's definitely been updated that's what i've uh discovered yeah. so far but ancestry has over 20 million 23 and me has 12.5 million my heritage has 6 million uh Jedmatch has 1.8 million and family tree dna has 1.2 million in their autosomal dna database which we talked about a little mm -hmm. that's the type of dna we're using primarily for this work but they have two other databases as well with y chromosome dna and mitochondrial dna and since you're a science junkie the mm -hmm. y chromosome only males have it and they get it from their father who got it from his father who got it from his father so that often can tell you someone's surname because surnames are passed down in many communities or population groups in that same inheritance pattern from father to son, father to son. Women don't have a right Y chromosome, so we can't do that test on our own DNA. And then mitochondrial DNA, we all inherit from our mother's, 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 mother's line. And so that older type of genetic genealogy was only informative of those outer lines of our family tree. And you asked about autosomal DNA that is the one that has really opened the floodgates because that DNA is inherited from all of our ancestral lines. All of us, including women, get 50% from dad, 50% from mom. We get about 25% from each grandparent, about 12.5% from each great-grandparent, and so on. And so that is what allows us to do this work. Now, I just said that because I remembered you asked about all this <laughs> DNA. Yes, I did. <laughs> so we got that in there. Yes, you did. Thank you. And I know this is probably like completely off the subject, but I am actually um, part of the member of the group called the Trans Doe Task Force. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. They're trying to identify unknown lost loved ones or remains. They could have been discovered with mm -hmm. female gender clothing, but they are misidentified or mispronounced based on what they were wearing. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some people that are, uh, you know, androgynous, um, or they might have a particular DNA that involves with some type of rarity where the person could be both, yeah, both sexes. So, so how, have you ever encountered anything like that? Or, or I have encountered it in the research I did before working with law enforcement, I've definitely worked with women that had Y chromosomes and uh, those types of genetic anomalies. And it, you know, it doesn't really make a big difference when you're researching your own family tree, but it, it could absolutely have an impact if it's an un unidentified individual and they're being misgendered. And so their DNA is telling the medical examiner that they're male, for instance, and they lived as a female. Well, of course, they're not going to get identified then, right? So we haven't run into that in our cases yet, to my knowledge. But I was just okay. talking to a detective just before we got on this about a case that is, 
appears that way. And so it is something that I think people are much more aware of now. The medical examiners are much more aware of it, the detectives, and they're keeping their eyes open. Whereas I think in the past decades, that wasn't something that most people even considered. And so there probably are quite a few unidentified remain sets out there that haven't been identified for that reason. And they'll just slowly work their way through the system now. And now that there's more awareness, I think that, you know, we shouldn't have as much trouble getting them identified. I was just going to add that it's something that I think we always keep in mind, even though we haven't seen um, a case of it yet within Parabon. I think it's something that I always have in mind when I'm working on a Jane or a John Doe that, you know, it might possibly be somebody who on a census record might have been recorded as one sex, but then, you know, their DNA is telling us that they're something else. Yeah, there's so much more awareness. So, you know, hopefully it won't be as difficult going forward. Yeah, I agree that we are definitely looking for it. And so it's good that awareness is there. And it's not just us looking for it. The medical examiners that I've been involved with are also aware of that and keeping their eyes open for it. That is wonderful. I am glad that there will be more aware of our surroundings and our and the people that are on this earth that are still lost. Um, and we're fighting every way possible, uh, removing those boundaries in regards to how our thought process solving these. Uh, last bit of information would you like to share with listeners if there's something that I uh, didn't hit on, please, please share with me. The one thing that I would just say is to remind people um, that you don't need to be afraid to get involved in these investigations. If somebody does reach out to you and, you know, want to, you know, get family information, or if you find out that you are connected to a Jane or a John Doe or a criminal case, um, you know, don't be afraid to get involved. You don't need to use your name. Nobody needs to know, you know, that you're helping um, but there's such a strong, strong need within, you know, these different uh, population groups that are so underrepresented in the databases. Um, so I would just encourage people to keep an open mind and, and help us, you know, get answers for these families. Like Carol, something I've already mentioned, but I want to emphasize is this misconception that we are able to access Ancestry DNA and 23andMe and MyHeritage, which are the three largest databases. A lot of people say to me, oh, I saw your TV series, and so I tested at Ancestry so I could help you. And I say, oh, no, but did you download your raw data and upload it to GEDmatch and opt into law enforcement matching? No, because there is this misconception that often the media is even putting out there that law enforcement has access to those databases. And those databases are absolutely closed off to us. Their terms of service, their attorneys will fight any efforts for law enforcement to get crime scene DNA or unidentified remains into their databases. For the Jane and John Doe's, at least, you, it certainly just sounds like it is a good deed. But these companies have decided this is not something they want to get involved in. And so if people have tested at one of those big consumer DNA testing companies where there are those 40 million DNA profiles and they want to help us, they need to get it into GEDmatch and or Family Tree DNA's database. You have to jump through a few hoops. You've got to request to download your raw data 
from the settings section in those databases, then, you know, they'll send you an email. Are you sure you want to do this? Yes. You've got to download it to your computer. You can't do it on your phone as far as I know. And then you have to go create a free account at GEDmatch and or Family Tree DNA. Won't cost you a thing, but it'll take you maybe a little bit of time to get it in there. In GEDmatch, you have the choice. Do you only want to help on the unidentified human remains cases, in which case you do not opt into law enforcement matching, but we can use your DNA for Jane and John Doe cases. If you're willing to help with these violent criminal cases, there's a box you check that says, yes, you can add me to the matching pool for that as well. Um, at Family Tree DNA, it's all or nothing. So you either help on all the cases or no, none of the cases, um, but at GEDmatch, you do have that choice. And so we just really want people to understand if they've already tested their DNA, then they can help us, but they have to take those steps. Wonderful. Thank you, Carol and Cece. There's one little tad thing, because uh, me being a parent of three boys, back mm -hmm. in the day, I used to take them to these like um, neighborhood events with law enforcement. They would pass out these child safe kits with a little swab and fingerprints and stuff like that and saying, as long as you have some type of identification that we could utilize, they would have like a little swab. We put the little the little kid's fingerprint and a little ink and have a little card or envelope or something like that. Yeah, I remember those too. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Is that yeah. something that's considered still beneficial for parents? I guess as a side note, I mean, I can probably cut this out, but I was like, I've always was sure. an advocate for that stuff. I but think you know, most parents probably don't want to hand their DNA over to law enforcement, but there's no reason you can't swab your own child's cheek and keep that in case of an emergency. And I think that's what they were doing with those. And so if your child goes missing, then that is something that could be submitted to law enforcement. So yeah, I think that's a great idea. And there, it's still within your control, right? It still protects the privacy of your child because the only time you would use that is if they did go missing or something happened and there was some emergency where it was necessary. Okay. Well, that was my little tidbit that I just want to throw in there. I thank you. Um, it's just a conversation, but it's a, it's an extremely beneficial conversation, not just for me, but for anybody else who listens to it. Uh, strongly aware now that they they might have had some additional questions but now they're they know what to do and yeah. um we've helped thank them you. along the way yeah thank you so much and thank you for doing the podcast because i yeah, think it's a difference right agree thank you for getting the awareness out there every one of these types of stories or podcasts or articles can help to get more people behind that our mission and to help people get identified as carol said any new upload, any new person that decides to help could be the answer to solving a case and getting one of these people back to their families. Thanks for your hard work putting this together. Oh, no, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. What does Hispanic mean? In general, it refers to those persons with the ancestry from Spanish-speaking countries, which is why countries like Brazil and Belize are excluded as they were colonized by Portugal and Great Britain, respectively. But that does not mean you won't find any Hispanic people there. It simply means that those countries of origin do not meet the U.S. government definition. Now, keep in mind, though, Geopolitical boundaries have changed over the past 500 years. 
Additionally, genes have flowed with the people who've moved across those borders. As people crossed border lines, they did not magically transform into a different population. In the origins of Hispanic genetics, according to Family Tree DNA's population geneticist, Dr. Paul Meyer, Hispanic genes cannot be limited to a single profile. In general, Hispanic genes reflect three sources. Europe, Iberian Peninsula, Southern Europe, Africa, Northern Africa, Canary Islands, Americas, and Caribbean. Numerous indigenous populations referred to in Family Finder's My Origins as Emeridian. Now, how can you help? As I mentioned in previous episodes, GEDmatch offers a free DNA site built for genetic genealogy research. They have a global database of autosomal DNA data, an unmatched utility. They make this data accessible and effective. And there is three options that you have. They have one-to-many DNA comparison result, the one-to-one autosomal DNA comparison, and an admixture heritage. If you like to have your DNA tested to help Parabon have a stronger outline through genetic genealogy, you can order a Y-DNA, an MT-DNA, or a Family Finder test today. I will have the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Hands Off My Podcast. If you are enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support the mission, I do have a Patreon membership that will help the cause and bring more detail on cases and stories from the people of color community. If you yourself has a lost loved one or a story suggestion, please don't hesitate to contact me at email. Handsoffmypodcast at gmail.com And if you are only able to support in another way, please give this podcast a 5-star rating on Apple or Spotify and continue to listen to upcoming episodes every Thursday, wherever you listen to your podcast. Dios te bendiga.